Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an independent medical grant from Boehringer Ingelheim. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I'm welcoming back Dr. Rick Cutfield. We're going to talk about the management of type 2 diabetes and specifically a discussion around the newly subsidised SGLT2 inhibitors. Rick is the Clinical Director of Endocrinology and Diabetes at White Matter DHB and he is active in teaching, clinical research and enjoys all aspects of diabetes, endocrinology and general medicine. Welcome Rick. Thank you. So Rick, lifestyle interventions are always crucial when managing patients with type 2 diabetes and reduce the need for medications. I wonder if you could discuss this with us for a moment. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct, Louise. The, 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 the basis of all management in type 2 diabetes is, is lifestyle. Exercise absolutely needs to be emphasised and achieving an ideal weight is not absolutely necessary, but losing some weight in the vicinity of 5 to 10 kilograms is a pretty good target for, and probably achievable um, for many people. And so I think that while it's important to talk about medications, it's crucially important that we have lifestyle management as uh, part of every, every section of the algorithm. I've noticed recently that a lot of patients seem to be doing the keto diet and also long-term fasting diets, but the keto diet has been mentioned with these medications. I wonder if you can comment about those. It's a really good point. Um, one of the unusual complications from the SGLT2 drugs, empagliflozin, is this little risk of ketosis with just mildly elevated glucose levels, sometimes causing quite nasty acidosis. Now, we think that risk is greater in patients who are on uh, full ketotic diets. And I don't mean just, you know, a slight reduction um, in carbohydrate, but the full keto diet. And I think there is now going to be a sort of a caution about patients on keto diets using SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and if they are keen to, to use the drug, then they would probably need to increase their carb intake a little bit and be less ketotic or monitor ketones themselves as patients with type 1 do, uh, type 1 diabetes can do. So we're a little bit nervous about keto diets and SGLT2. And I think, I think uh, my advice would be to avoid these drugs if patients are fully committed to a keto diet and persist with them. And you mentioned increasing carbs. Is there a magic gram number because they seem to be quite focused yes no i can't tell you because i don't think there's evidence yet as to as to how much you need but i think if if your patient's persistent and losing weight and doing well on a keto diet then they may not need anything anyway but um i would be very nervous about sglt2 inhibitors if patients have mild ketones uh, in their urine or plasma and persist with that so i think my advice would be to avoid it in patients with keto diets we're going to talk about pharmacological treatment quite a lot now. The aim of that is obviously to reduce the diabetic complications and we have to individualise it, thinking about overall health status, comorbidities and risks of hypoglycemia. And those targets might change over time. So the guidelines have been updated. Tell us what's happening there. Yeah, just last year we decided, or um, I was a one member of a, of a larger group from the New Zealand Society for the Study of Diabetes that decided that the guidelines do need to be updated. And we've really changed um, quite a lot, actually, in these guidelines. Um, you'll remember that lifestyle, 
usually followed then by metformin, then followed by a sulfonylurea. But we have now two new agents, and it's made us think a little bit about what we're trying to achieve in diabetes. There is a target HbA1c, which is individualized. For most people, that'll be around 50 to 53, but for older people with comorbidities, it might be a little bit higher. And then we look at what we're actually trying to do, other than just bring glucose levels down to reduce microvascular complications. We're actually looking at people's life and uh, mortality and cardiovascular events and kidney failure and so forth. And finally, I think we've got drugs that can actually significantly reduce uh, the, the, the progression of kidney disease, the incidence of heart failure, hospitalization for, for cardiac events and so forth. So the way we look now at these guidelines is to look at, as you rightly said, look at each patient individually, um, try to itemize their risk of each of these complications, and then choose the right drug. Um, and I think that in the past, we've had sulfonylureas, which have tended to cause a little weight gain, cause hypoglycemia, and actually there's no evidence that they reduce um, uh, mortality or cardiac events. Metformin, there is a bit more evidence for that, uh, but now we have some really, really good evidence for these new agents uh, doing exactly what we wanted to. So let's move to what I would do with a patient with type 2 diabetes after lifestyle advice in assuming that uh, the person does have type 2 diabetes and nothing else, and that they have a target HbA1c that we have negotiated. Metformin still drug of choice, and you'll know that we've overused the dosage of that. Probably no more than two grams a day is needed. And we can use metformin probably right down to an EGFR of even 20 uh, on just 500 milligrams once a day. Um, so we, we've probably been at risk of sort of concern, concern about lactic acidosis with metformin, which is a bit overstated, in my opinion. After metformin, we used to say sulfonylurea. But now I think we have got to look at a person and say uh, what is best for them. And sulfonylurea now probably is going to be about the level. Hypoglycemia is to be avoided at all costs. Uh, I think we've already talked about a DPP-4, vildagliptin being perfect for that person. So probably a good second choice. But if you're at risk of kidney disease, or have early kidney disease, or microalbuminuria, or you have a CV risk of 15%, or you're young with type 2 diabetes and have a high lifetime risk of, of developing cardiovascular events. And indeed, as Pharmac have stated, if you are Maori and if you are Pacific Island and therefore have an increased risk of all of these complications, then your drug of choice should be an SGLT2 inhibitor. And the SGLT2 inhibitors uh, there is one going to be uh, that is funded uh, from February the 1st, Impagliflozin, and it comes in two doses, uh, 10 milligrams, and that can be titrated up to the 25 milligram dose. And it works um, briefly by blocking um, glucose reabsorption in the proximal tubule of the kidney. So in other words, you're flushing out extra glucose in your urine. You get glycosuria, and you get sodium excretion as well. How the drug actually reduces heart failure and cardiac events and renal, renal disease or progression of renal disease is not entirely clear, but like our story with metformin, we, we knew it was an okay drug, but we didn't know quite how it worked. So 
and we still don't actually, but the SGLT2s definitely reduce oxidative stress and they reduce preload in the heart. And we're learning more and more about what they do. And I can say this, that while New Zealand has funded this drug for diabetes, in the United States and other countries, it's being used as an anti-heart failure drug and kidney drug uh, without uh, for patients without diabetes. So they're remarkable agents. The empical flows and dose is started at 10 and then we build it up to 25 milligrams. It does have some side effects, um, but uh, the good thing, before I talk about side effects, the good things it does is that it lowers glucose levels, which is part of its reason for being um, a, a new anti-diabetic drug. It reduces blood pressure a little bit and it reduces intravascular volume a little bit too. So you have to be a bit cautious if your patient's already on a diuretic, you may need to reduce the dose. It also lowers uric acid levels, uh, interestingly enough, and it reduces weight uh, by two or three kilograms. So it's one of the first agents that causes weight loss. Metformin, perhaps a little bit, vildagliptin, weight neutral, sulfonylurea and insulin put on weight a little, particularly insulin. So that's why it's an attractive drug and it doesn't seem to cause hypoglycemia. The concerns are, are really fairly minor and don't affect too many people, but they need to be mentioned and you have to mention them to patients. And that is that they can in induce a slight diuresis. So you have to be careful that the person has become dehydrated and if they're on diuretics, the dose should be decreased. So that's the first thing. Um, it can lower blood pressure a little bit. So if they're on a NACE inhibitor, you may or may not need to reduce the dose a little bit. Or on a calcium antagonist, you may just need to just, just keep an eye on that blood pressure over the, last, over the first few weeks particularly. And there is an increased risk of urinary tract infections, particularly for women, somewhere in the vicinity of 5 to 10% of people. Usually not a problem, occasionally a biggish issue. And of course, it can cause, because there is glycosuria, you can get increased uh, genital infections, particularly thrush and balanitis. And so usual hygiene in that area is to be emphasized. And that can be an issue for some people and, and may preclude its use, but not very often. The bigger issue, but a rare event, is a thing called euglycemic ketoacidosis. <laughs> so it's a bit of a mouthful. But there are now very strong warnings about this drug being used in patients who are sick. So if you become unwell, uh, you must stop this drug. And the reasons that it causes ketosis is to do with the insulin glucagon balance that this drug uh, induces. Uh, the bottom line is if a patient is sick, and particularly if they've got abdominal pain or nausea, they should see their GP straight away. Uh, and the GP would measure their glucose and measure their ketones. And if the ketones are quite high, they may well need hospitalization. So, uh, because they'll need an arterial blood gas, etc. So that's the only thing. And it affects perhaps one in 500 people. We stop the drug for operations, uh, big stresses. It's obviously not a drug we're going to use in the hospital, but it's, 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 it's the side effect that we need to be aware of. And Australian GPs have brought this to our attention uh, more. And there's some nice review articles on this. So that's, that's the main issue really about these drugs. They, they look like they're going to be terrific. And for our Maori and um, Pacific Island population, the special authority is just going to be type 2 diabetes and Maori and Pacific Island, tick.
There will be some other tick boxes for um, other ethnicities, including European, and a lot of people with microalbuminuria will qualify. And if they're young, particularly if they're under the age of 30 with type 2, they'll qualify. So I don't think we'll miss too many people. Some, of course, will not qualify for this agent. So, so I think that will be our aftermet form and will be our second agent. Perhaps, uh, perhaps vildagliptin might be first. For convenience, these drugs can be combined with metformin uh, in combo packets. Um, which uh, with names um, which you'll know about, but they're very simple to use, and I think once or they're usually twice a day drugs. Uh, once a day for empagliflozin, but in the combo with metformin, it's a twice a day drug. So that's very exciting, and that combo should reduce risks of kidney disease. It won't stop it, but it'll slow things down. So Rick, can I just go back to a couple of things you've said? You mentioned urinary tract infections and genital uh, infections. At what point, if we've got someone on this drug, they're stabilised, but they keep getting UTIs, what's our tolerance? How many UTIs before we would consider stopping? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think it's an individual question that a patient will tell you. So if they're getting loads of benefits from the STLT2 in other ways, um, and they're getting a couple of urinary tract infections a year, um, then they may wish to just continue and treat those with three-day courses of antibiotic or whatever you choose. The, if they're getting four or five infections a year, they're usually going to say this is enough and we can move to something else. Same with genital thrush and balanitis. And I have had patients who have said it's intolerable and I won't take this drug. And that's, it's really something the patient will tell you that they, they will tell you rather than you tell them. And you mentioned um, sodium being flushed out. So I just wonder about monitoring. So we start someone on this medication. Do, how often do we have to check their sodium? And if so, how often? No, the so sodium is remarkably um, stable. Um, so I don't think we need to monitor sodium. I would measure the creatinine. Um, interestingly, um, there is a little bit of dehydration. So people do have to drink a little bit more fluid. Obviously, if the HbA1c is very high to start with, they're likely to have more glycosuria and potentially a little bit more dehydration just because of the volume of glucose. But mostly, once the creatinine may just rise a little bit from dryness and then will stabilise, a bit like ACE inhibitors. I think these drugs, it's fair to say, it, it, it's sort of a bit similar to ACE inhibitors in some ways in the protection of kidney, uh, but maybe even more potent. That's why I think this is just a new generational change, really, in medication. These are very exciting agents to use, and we should try and keep them going if, if at all possible. And then a question about the HbA1c, what percentage drop or what number drop can we expect when we've maximised doses? Yeah, I mean, compared with all the other agents, they're probably a, a bit similar to a sulfonylurea, but we could expect a sort of a 10 drop easily. Um, but the higher, if you use them after metformin and the HbA1c was, say, 90, you may easily drop that down to below 70 quite quickly and quite easily. I think a little bit depends on where you're adding it. And it can be added, as I mentioned, as a second-line agent, but it can be added as a third-line agent as well. So after vildagliptin and metformin, it could be your third, third agent. That comes to my next question. So we've had someone on our metformin. They're on the SGL2 inhibitor plus or minus valgolipidum, what's the next thing? 
where do we go to from there? So then, then as you rightly said at the beginning, you know, we look at lifestyle again and see if the person's actually taking the medication. Because as you and I know, one of the commonest reasons for poor control in diabetes is adherence and a little bit of inertia. Sometimes patients not always pitching up to the to the appointments, uh, and, and perhaps a bit of inaction on both sides. And also lifestyle stuff, people going back to eating as they do sometimes during <laughs> viral uh, pandemics. So, um, so then the next stage is, would you add then uh, a sulfonylurea or pioglitazone? Pio, probably not an attractive agent to use for most um, situations in New Zealand and has a pretty uh, a low uptake rate, I think. We occasionally use it for the very insulin-resistant person, so it would be a reasonable agent um, for someone who is uh, not in heart failure and who is quite insulin-resistant. But usually sulfonylurea might go in there. But then we've got this new agent, which will be um, available uh, later this year, probably mid-year with luck. It has to go through MedSafe, and that's the um, new GLP-1 agonist. Now, Pharmac have decided you can't use an SGLT2 inhibitor and the GLP-1 agonist together, funded, because that's too expensive. So some people may continue to self-fund their SGLT2 and move to the GLP-1 or just swap over. Now, the GLP-1 agonist has been around for a long time. Uh, the, the one we have in, in New Zealand is, um, goes by the, uh, the name Trulicity, and it's a drug which... Uh, is given by subcutaneous injection just once a week. So it's an, it's really quite easy for patients, I think, although the injection-phobic person will still struggle a bit. It causes more weight loss. It's, it's a more potent weight-losing agent, and it's quite good. It's probably the equivalent of using insulin. So it's used in many countries as an insulin-sparing agent, even though it's an injection given once a week instead of twice a day. So I think it's more attractive, and I think it's something that we will probably want a, a separate education session on once we, once we get to the feel for it and when it's available, but it will be available. So if that's not available at the moment and your patient's not achieving good control on two or three oral agents, I'd probably stop at f certainly maximum of four would be you know, the absolute outside. Then I think we're going into our basal insulin um, program. And the NZSSD uh, website and also Health Pathways has the new guidelines elegantly presented, very easy to understand with little drop-down boxes and algorithms and so forth, uh, which go through amongst all the oral agents also how to use insulin again. And I know many people have been to many talks and lectures and so forth on how to use insulin, but at least it, it's, it's again starting with basal insulin and then either adding a short-acting short acting insulin or using one of the pre-mixed insulins. And um, so I don't think we should ever forget insulin. Um, there's two other points, uh, Louise, that I think might be worth mentioning. Certainly at the beginning, if the diabetes is really poorly controlled at the beginning, HbA1c is over 100 and the person's symptomatic, I don't hesitate to use insulin at the beginning and then wean people off, even though they know they've got type 2, and they may never go back onto insulin. It teaches them how to use insulin. They're never afraid of it once they've used it, um, but it helps bring the blood sugars down. The, the other little point is that I've mentioned that the algorithm states metformin and then another agent. 
But sometimes I start with two agents and there's a little bit of evidence that if you start with two agents, and I'm really thinking of Metformin and Vildegliptin together, that you uh, get a slightly longer period without beta cell loss uh, and progression of diabetes. So I think there's now a little trend to if the HbA1c is, say, over 65 in that 65 to 70 range, there's lifestyle. But instead of just starting metformin, you could start metformin and vildegliptin together uh, and then use the combined tablet, perhaps after about four to six weeks. So I think that's the other change that we've mentioned in the, in the guideline. So with all these changes, Rick, what do you think will happen to diabetes in New Zealand? Well, with hope, if we... Um, randomized controlled trials translate into you know real life medicine and that doesn't always occur as we know then we should see a reduction in patients going on to dialysis i think that from my sums you could uh, now delay dialysis by up to 10 years so that's one thing we should be able to reduce hospitalizations for heart failure and heart failure is probably the understated, possibly the most common cardiac complication, macrovascular complication that we know of. And so we should see a marked reduction in that. And we should see a reduction in mortality from diabetes. These days, the commonest death from diabetes is actually cancer. So it's probably more an obesity-related uh, complication. And so most people die from cancer, not from heart disease these days. And I think we're going to continue to see that trend. And I think our emphasis is, is not just going to be on blood sugars. It's going to be on that whole person, the obesity, the cancer screening, as well as, as the heart and kidney screening. So I'm really hopeful that this will be a paradigm shift in the management of diabetes. And that um, although we won't see these results for 10 or 15 years, um, I think we're on, um, on the right path. And to be honest, we uh, are following what's happened in, in Europe and the US because uh, they've had these drugs for 10 years. And I suppose from a health equity point, we should see some shift as well. Well, that's really important. And Pharmac were enlightened with some prodding in uh, allowing these drugs to be used for uh, preferentially for Māori and Pacific Island patients, which I think is because is, um, they do sort of wear the burden a little bit of this diabetes uh, pandemic. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Just to conclude today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? Okay, well, number one is uh, stick with the old-fashioned lifestyle changes and try and get your patients to lose weight as best you can. On the website, there are lots of ways of doing that, and you'll know things that work for you. Number two is we can continue to use metformin safely, but don't um, stop that drug unless you really need to, unless the EGFR is down to around 20, and probably don't use more than two grams a day. Think about using dual agents if the HbA1c is high, particularly metformin and vildegliptin. Now using SGLT2 as your second agent, if you like, after metformin, uh, and sulfonylureas get bumped down to number four. If your patient's already on sulfonylureas, you don't need to stop them, uh, but start using SGLT2s according to the guidelines. Um, we will have GLP-1s again shortly. And then don't forget about insulin. It's still, we're talking about an insulin-deprived uh, uh, patient group. Um, insulin's still great, but we're probably going to use it a bit less. Um, patients might uh, like that. And so we may be using a GLP-1 agonist instead of insulin um, as we progress through these next few years. 
And I think now the, the, the big message is not to think about diabetes as a, as a, as a glucose-lowering exercise, but consider it as a, uh, as a condition where heart disease and kidney disease is to be absolutely prevented. And we can do that with these drugs. And uh, we need to think a little bit more about uh, a cancer um, and cancer um, screening in patients with diabetes and obesity. It's an exciting time for diabetes in New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. Great, Rick. Thank you. The pleasure. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points for listening to this, don't forget to log them on. Also visit our website for the resources that Rick has mentioned in this podcast and some free-to-air webinars, bed cases and e-learning modules. Thanks for listening today.